You're listening to audio from Century Baptist Church. To connect with us, visit centurybaptist.org or download the Century Baptist Church app. I'm Brant Dick. I'm one of the elders here at uh, Century Baptist, and I would ask that if you would stand in honor of a reading of the Word, we're going to read from Matthew 10, verses 1 through 15. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but... Go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words, and we just thank you for the freedoms that we have to come to hear, and we just pray our hearts will be open to your message as it brought forth. We commit this time to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We live in an audience and not a participation world anymore. Throughout my lifetime, I've observed a significant shift from the amount of action and participation of mankind to a very passive observation of watching others. It's become a bigger and bigger part of our day, our week, and our life. And not only do we fill large stadiums and arenas and auditoriums for sporting events and concerts and a wide variety of entertainment. But we're glued to our screens and devices of all shapes and sizes that entertain us. We smile, we, we laugh, we cringe, we shake our head, we stare in amazement as we observe others performing some feat, playing a game or demonstrating their proficiency of skill. We have football stadiums that hold more than the entire population of Bismarck. In the U.S., we have 38 football stadiums with a capacity of at least 70,000 people. So when a game is going on, we can fill that thing with 70,000 plus to watch and to sit, to observe. We have... uh, College football stadiums with well over 100,000, multiple. Think about that. 100,000 people gathering in one place 
to watch 22 sweaty people push each other around. When there's a game, these stadiums, these arenas, these auditoriums are typically filled. Baseball stadiums holding up to 50,000. Hockey and basketball arenas typically seating 20,000 people. And if you've ever been in a basketball arena that seats 20,000 people watching a basketball game and you didn't pay multiple hundreds or thousands of dollars for your seat, I know what you were thinking. What in the world am I doing here? It's so much better on my television. But as these events are scheduled, tickets are purchased and humanity shows up and crowds into these buildings to watch, sometimes standing and, and cheering. It's quite an amazing phenomenon if, if you really think about it. Because we will pay hundreds, even thousands of dollars to buy a ticket to go watch others. And we'll do it week after week after week. In fact, some of us will have to work 10, 20, 30 hours or more just to afford the ticket. So that we can be, so that we can be present and we can watch, we can be a fan, we can passively spend our time judging the performance of another. But our world has gone so much farther than buying a ticket or going to an arena or purchasing concessions for the price of a used car and taking our seat to be entertained. We've now put it on television and we've brought it home, but you know that, that's, that's so 80s. Now what we do is we carry it with us in our pocket, and at any given moment, we have the opportunity to watch our team regardless of what other commitments we have going on at the time. And people will multitask this all the time. Some of you right now might be multitasking the Vikings game. <laughs> Many of you are going to spend time this afternoon in front of a screen watching football. Many of you probably did that yesterday, devoured all kinds of hours on college football. That is present on just about every channel available. And our culture and our nation has become very sedentary in, in many ways. And as days and years go by, physical activity has, has decreased substantially, as have more ways to view events, to view games, to view activities. And the number of participants has decreased while the amount of audience increases. The reality is that it's made its way into many avenues of our lives, and I believe including the church, and we don't even know that it happened. Let's think this through for a bit, if you will, with me. The church has become known as a building, a location, or an event. The question is asked, are you going to church? And what is meant by that question is most likely one of two things. Are you going to a worship service or are you going to a particular building or location? Well, it kind of makes sense of how we understand the word church in our English language. In fact, if you look up in the Oxford English Dictionary, here's the definition of church. A building used for public Christian worship. Merriam-Webster defines it this way, a building for public and especially Christian worship. 
In fact, you have to get to definition number three in an English dictionary before it gets close to the meaning of the word church in the New Testament. When we go to the Bible and we seek to understand what church is, we find something quite different. We discover the word translated church in English comes from the Greek word ekklesia, and that term means a gathering, an assembly, a congregation, a group of peoples. The New Testament use of ekklesia or church referenced and meant people, followers of Jesus, believers in Jesus Christ. Words have meaning, they always have and they always will. But if we're not careful, we're going to lose the original meaning and replace it with a definition that suits our liking. And I see this happening to the bride of Jesus, to the church, to the ecclesia, to the gathering, the assembly of followers, his disciples. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. The apostle Paul in Ephesians 2, verses 19 and 20 said, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The language used is a metaphor utilizing this illustration of a building that is in process of being built. There's a foundation, there's a chief cornerstone. It's painting a picture for people to see and understand what the church is, how it will come to be, who is the head of it, how it is built, and upon what it is built. Jesus did not build a building. Jesus built an ecclesia, a gathering, an assembly of his followers. He built his disciples together. And that ecclesia, that assembly of, of people together, of his disciples together, was for the purpose of making disciples, Matthew chapter 28, by being witnesses of him in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, Acts 1.8. So you can tell this isn't about a building or a specific location. Rather, this is about living, moving, interacting, engaging, intersecting our lives with the lives of others. We were not created to watch, to sit in an audience and be passive as Christians. Disciples of Jesus are to be active, engaging, playing, if you will, participating. God created us in His image, and God is a very active God. As followers, we're created to be involved, using our gifts, our skills, our abilities to make a difference in the life of the kingdom of heaven. So your presence here this morning is not one to be passive. It's to be active with a focus on the God who created you, who loves you and who gave his son, Jesus Christ, to be the sacrifice for sins once for all. Now take that biblical truth and align it with our scripture for today and you're going to understand that we don't attend church. We engage in corporate worship to the audience of one and there is a very big difference. 
As we've been studying through the Gospel of Matthew, we come today to chapter 10. Matthew writes about Jesus' relationship to Israel, including the explanation of how Israel is going to reject Jesus. And that is coming in subsequent weeks and months as we continue to study through Matthew. Matthew records in his gospel six long discourses of Jesus. We studied through the first one, Matthew 5 to 7, known as the Sermon on the Mount. Today we begin the second one. It's Matthew chapter 10. As Matthew is led by the Holy Spirit to write this book of the Bible, he penned his gospel with a focus on Jesus' messianic identity, that Jesus will be and is king over Israel. The fulfillment that Jesus is of the promise God made, of the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. Jesus is king, and as we continue to study this gospel, we're learning more about the kingship of Jesus. You see, Jesus knew why he came to earth. He knew why he was born as a baby, that he, he knew why he lived in a nuclear family, that he grew up to become a man. He also knew he needed to make preparation for what would take place following his fulfillment of his purpose on earth, which was to be the sacrifice for sins, to give his life as a sacrifice, a sacrificial payment of sins for mankind once and for all. And so Matthew writes his gospel in a very logical, but not necessarily chronological way. He's very analytical, rational, and does it in a systematic manner so that we can connect, the, we can connect these dots of Jesus' life prior to his incarnation all the way through his return to his heavenly Father. Matthew begins with the genealogy of Jesus. And from there he goes into his birth. And from his birth we move on to his baptism and to his temptation. And that Jesus began his ministry, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he moved into teaching of the disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7. And following that, in the two chapters we just finished, he shows his disciples what he meant by what he was teaching. And as they are with him, he is, he is living out right in front of them the very things that he taught them to do. And now we come to chapter 10, where he is about to commission and instruct his disciples to do the very things that they heard Jesus teach and that they witnessed him do. And so as chapter 9 concludes, Jesus stated to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, plead, beg, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. Jesus made this statement to his disciples after observing the people. And he felt compassion on these people as they were distressed, they were dispirited, they were harassed. And we looked at that last week. And then it says he summoned his 12 disciples. 
Now, don't miss the significance of this. Jesus said to his disciples in chapter 9, verse 37, hey, you need to pray to the Lord of the harvest that he send out workers into the harvest field. And two verses later, he summons his disciples, is about to commission them, and he's coaching them to send them out. The very ones he's calling to be in prayer, to be begging and pleading before the Lord of the harvest is the ones he's going to use to answer that prayer. Many times I think that these verses at the end of chapter 9 are, are isolated from a, from a broader context and therefore they leave us with an incomplete understanding of what Jesus is saying and, and doing here. Jesus states the reality of the situation and then he calls his disciples to himself and he says, men, here's the mission and you're going to be about it. You're going to be in that that." harvest field. Maybe, just maybe, we look at these these verses at the end of chapter 9 as an invitation to pray to God that God would raise up some, some pastors and some preachers and some missionaries, some professionals to go do the job. But as we come to chapter 10 and as we're going to see in verses 2 to 4, Jesus is about to utilize some very unprofessional men, some very ordinary guys. He's not calling pastors or preachers or missionaries, but he's going to equip them to become them. So what if Jesus is saying in verse 38, based on what he does in in chapter 10, That you are to plead, you are to beseech God and pray earnestly that God would choose you and send you into the harvest field. Not to be praying that someone else would go, but that you would be the one that God is to send. This past Monday evening as I was with my community life group and we were studying scripture and sharing together, one of the the group members said, and I'll just just paraphrase what she said, as as she came from the, the interacting with the text Last Sunday, she goes, I, I need to be about the harvest field. I need to be the one going. God's wanting to use me. God's wanting me to share with those that I'm around. And it needs to start in my workplace. See, to be a follower of Jesus is to be active, to engage our neighbors, our culture, and our world. This idea of watching others perform the work of ministry in the harvest fields is not what being a Christian is about. A Christian is called, commissioned, and coached by Jesus to be in the harvest field because a disciple is one who actively follows Jesus and loves people. There is work to be done, and Jesus summons us to do it in the same way that he did the 12 disciples here in Matthew chapter 10. Verse 1, we read, Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority. These men who had responded to Jesus' invitation to follow him in chapter 4 had been with him as he began his ministry, had sat on that that mountainside and and heard his teaching and walked with him and was right there with a front row seat to the way in which he engaged the people and he healed the sick and raised the dead and cleansed the lepers and cast out demons. 
These are the ones that he now turns to and says, you guys are about to go on mission. So the call of Jesus to follow him is not one of continual observation, being passive and having no responsibility of of anything to do. Following Jesus is not a spectator sport where we gather into a stadium or arena or a church building and we stop at the concession stand on the way in to pick up our popcorn before we go take our seat and sit down and then watch others do the work of ministry. See, the person who claims to be a believer in Jesus as the Son of God who sacrificially died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins and that Jesus' shed blood was the payment to satisfy the wrath of a holy God. That person is called by Jesus to be on his team, to get in the game and to be a worker in the Lord's harvest field because following Jesus is not a spectator sport. Jesus, verse 1, summoned his 12 disciples. That means he called them to himself. Guys, All right, here we go. I just told you that the Lord needs workers in the harvest field. I just told you you are to plead to the Lord for workers in the harvest field. And now, come here. I'm giving you, it says, authority. Oh, now it's getting good. I have a mission for you. So he summons, he calls to himself. Who? His disciples, those who are followers, those who are learners. A disciple is a pupil, a student, one who is, it implies a closer relationship than just mere information. Sometimes we've relegated discipleship and being a disciple to just learning and understanding more of the Bible. And that's not what the word, all that the word contains and means. It's actually one who submits himself to the discipline, to the teacher of a leader. And so these 12 are submitting themselves to Jesus as he has summoned them. And it says that Jesus gave them authority. The action is Jesus giving. What's he giving? He's giving his authority. To whom is he giving it? He's giving it to the disciples. He's giving his authority, that very same authority that he just demonstrated in the past two chapters, as he was healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out demons, cleansing lepers. That same authority Jesus is giving to these, his 12 disciples. And it's authority, as we continue to read, over unclean spirits. There's two kinds of spirits, unclean or clean. Impure or pure? Evil or good? Of the kingdom of Satan or of the kingdom of God? Those are the two kinds of spirits there are. That's it. There's two. And so here Jesus is giving his authority to the twelve over these unclean spirits. Why? To cast them out. And he's also giving his authority for another reason. Or he's giving it over another reason. It's over disease and sickness. For what purpose? So that people can be healed. Why? So that 
when you take the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ to others, you can meet that physical need that is a roadblock and that is a barrier to them actually hearing about their spiritual need that they have. If you've ever tried to get a little child to do chores while he's hungry, good luck. It's hard enough when they're not hungry. But when you have a physical need present, you, you can't focus on anything else. And so Jesus is summoning his twelve, giving his authority so that they can meet the needs of the people that he is sending them out to minister to. Verse 2 says, now the names of the twelve apostles are these. Well, this is interesting. He just summoned the twelve and now he, he changes the word. Matthew does. He calls, them, he calls them apostles. An apostle is one who is sent forth. It does, it does and is differentiated from a disciple in this sense. It's one who is sent forth and has a function to serve in a capacity. And so the disciples, these followers, these learners who are with Jesus following him around, he's now, he now changes it. He's calling them apostles because he's giving them a task and he's giving them a function and they're to be about to do it and he's equipping them to do that very thing. As Matthew lists them here, he lists them in pairs, which is very likely the manner in which he sent them out two by two for this purpose of preaching and teaching and, and healing the distressed and the dispirited. And so these 12 disciples are listed. We got, we got Simon and Andrew. We know that they're brothers. We got James and John. We know that, we know that they, are, they are fishermen. They are the sons of Zebedee. We also know in Scripture they're called the sons of thunder. That'll tell you something about their aggressive nature and their temperament. The next four that he, he lists together are Philip and Bartholomew. Philip, along with Peter and Andrew, was one of the first disciples. He was of the hometown of Bethsaida, which is the same hometown as Peter and Andrew. We have Bartholomew. It's the same person as Nathaniel that we read about in other places in the gospel. Thomas and Matthew. Thomas, most of us know Thomas. Oh yeah, he's, he's the one who doubted. And that's very unfortunate because he should be remembered for his courage in John chapter 11 and his profound confession of faith in John chapter 20. Matthew, here in his own gospel, refers to himself as a, as a tax collector. He's also known as, as Levi, as we read in other gospels. And then the last four, we have James, the son of Alphaeus. And Thaddeus, who's also referred to as Lebius, and he also has a third name, Judas, son of James. And the last two are Simon, who is a zealot. So this dude has uh, religious and, and political associations. And then lastly is, is Judas Iscariot. We know him to, to have betrayed Jesus. And Iscariot is the identifier of the town that he uh, came from. He's a man of Kirioth. Robert Coleman in his book, The Master Plan of Evangelism, remarks on the twelve disciples this way, and I quote, None of them occupied prominent places in the synagogue, nor did any of them belong to the Levitical priesthood. For the most part, they were common laboring men, probably having no professional training beyond the rudiments 
of knowledge necessary for their vocation. None of them could have been considered wealthy. They had no academic degrees in the arts and philosophies of their day. By any standard of sophisticated culture then and now, they would surely be considered as a rather ragged aggregation of souls, end quote. That doesn't sound like a group of professionals, does it? That doesn't sound like a group that had gone off and spent time, time training. That sounds like a group of men that Jesus called to himself and he said, hey, by the way, I'm giving you a mission and I'm going to coach you up and you're going to go do it. And that's exactly what he does. As we come to verses 5 through 8, we really now get to see that if we're going to follow Jesus, it's going to be marked by active obedience. These guys are about to be put into the game, and oh, it's, it's going to be a game. Verse 5 says, Jesus sends out the twelve after instructing them. And the entire rest of the chapter of Matthew 10 is the instruction that Matthew gives to the twelve disciples. And over the course of the next number of weeks, we're going to look at all these different instructions that, Math, uh, that Jesus is giving to his disciples. He's instructing them. He's giving orders. He's giving a direct charge to them. That, that term Matthew uses speaks of the authority's instruction to a subordinate, often in a military setting. Direct orders given by Jesus to the disciples. And the first thing he says, do not go in the way of the Gentiles. Okay, who are the Gentiles? Well, they're not Jews. They are not Jewish. And then the second thing he says, and do not enter any city of the Samaritans. Okay, who are the Samaritans? Well, the Samaritans were a mixed breed. Some of the Jews that were intermingled with Gentiles. And Jesus is making very clear right here, I don't want you going to the Gentiles, I don't want you going to the Samaritans. Verse 6, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, meaning the family of Israel, the offspring of Israel. The reference here being to the covenant that God made with Abraham back in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. This idea of the lost sheep of the house of Israel doesn't refer to just a portion of the Jewish people. It means all the people. And these disciples are to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. These are their kinsmen. These are their people. They are going to know the language. They are going to know their religion. They are going to know the customs. They're going to know the culture. They're going to know the manners. These are the people who you are to go to. It's interesting, and I don't have time to develop this, but Jesus starts very small and very intentional in the easiest, probably the easiest way he could. You don't have to study up on anything. You guys know it. These are your people. You're going to go here. Later on, we're going to see that's going to expand, even as we get in 
later and later to, to Matthew. It's going to expand to, they will go to the Samaritans, and they will go to the Gentiles. But for right now, we're just going to the Jews. Verse 7, And as you go preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Huh. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? We've been studying through Matthew for a number of months. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Jesus said the same thing. John the Baptist said the same thing in chapter 3. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Guys, you know the message. It's really easy. You've been hearing me say it and preach it. Now you go do it. Now in verses 7 and 8, Jesus actually gives them Five commands, the disciples. The first one is preach. That's a command. So this is not like, hey, go to the people of the lost sheep of Israel and, uh, hey, while you're there, maybe say something about the kingdom of heaven. No, preach. Again, Jesus, very clear, very direct. This is what you're going to do. And then he says, second command, heal. Who? The sick. Third command, raise the dead. Fourth command, cleanse the lepers. Fifth command, cast out demons. Looks an awful lot like chapters 8 and 9 of Matthew's gospel. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Preach the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then as he ends that, well, it, for us, it's that verse. He says, freely you received, freely give. The disciples didn't pay a thing for the training that they were getting. The disciples didn't have an investment. In fact, Jesus invested in them. And now, Jesus says to them, as you have freely received, as you have freely heard the gospel message, as you have freely been healed, as you have freely been forgiven, you freely give that to someone else. This is not about taking stuff in and, and making money off this deal. This is about just giving it away. And now Jesus gets into more of how they are to prepare themselves as they go. What they are to take with them and how quickly they are to, about to be about the task. Because following Jesus always includes instruction and guidance. He never, ever leaves us and says, I really hope they figure it out. If you're ever in that place as a follower of Jesus, where you're going, I don't know, Jesus seems to have left... I venture to say, who moved? Because Jesus will always be with us, will always instruct us, will always guide us. And here he tells his disciples, he says, do not acquire. Again, he's coming directly at him. He says, this, I'm giving you one more command. You don't acquire gold, silver, copper for your money belts. This is not something you do. You don't acquire a bag for your journey. You don't grab two coats or sandals or a staff. The worker is worthy of his support. 
as you are going out, you are going out and you don't need to take this stuff with you. And we're going to see next week why and how that's going to be, be handled. But he says here, the worker is worthy of his support. Allow God to take care of you. Allow the God who loves you, who created you, who sent his son to die for you, as you go on mission for him, allow him to take care of you. The worker is worthy of his support. Allow God to be in charge. Allow God to provide for the needs. So as we look at at this, let's keep in mind there's some significant differences between the first century context of the original 12 disciples being sent out here and the 21st century context of disciples of Jesus today. Jesus gave the 12 here a most unique apostolic authority, including special and specific power over unclean spirits, the ability to heal diseases, cleanse lepers, and raise the dead. There is no place in the Bible where we are told Jesus is giving that same apostolic authority to disciples today. That's the first difference. The second difference is this. This mission had a unique, narrow, and even exclusive scope. The disciples, the twelve, were only to go to the Jewish people. No Gentiles, no Samaritans. So while this account does not directly transfer with specificity to our context today, there is much we can learn from this account and from these verses and apply it to our lives. And the first is this. The Lord of the harvest wants us to plead with Him for workers in the harvest. And as Christians, we must be aware that each one of us is likely to be the answer to the prayer for that workers in the harvest field. That's the first one. The second is, as a disciple of Jesus, He is calling us to be involved in the game, not sit in the stands. Our life as a disciple is not passive in any way. It's active. We are to be on the field, we are to be engaged, we are to be involved in the action. Third, the Jesus who commissions us with clarity, who calls us, commissions us with clarity as to what He has for us to do, where He has for us to go, and to whom He wants us to minister. Fourth, the Jesus who calls us and commissions us equips us to minister to those whom we are to engage in serving, and whom, to whom we are to declare the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And fifth, the Jesus who calls us and commissions us coaches us. He gives us all necessary instruction and preparation for the mission to which He is sending us. So as we look at this text 
as we apply it. We see that our faith, one aspect of it is participation in corporate worship. Not just the singing of songs, not just listening to the, to the pastor, but active engagement of our mind, of our heart, or our body, our allegiance to the only one worthy of our praise and our worship. Focusing our attention on God, our Creator, our Savior, the one who has given us life. Corporate worship is not a religious activity to be checked off of a list. It's an encounter with a holy God, the holy God, the giver of every good and perfect gift. Church is not something you do. It's who you are. If you're a believer in Jesus, you're a disciple, you're a follower of the only Son of God who died on the cross for the forgiveness of sin. And He is calling you to a mission. The second specific application we're going to participate with together. For those of you who are believers in Jesus Christ here this morning, gathered in this corporate worship setting. It's called the Lord's Supper or communion. It's a sacred time of remembering what Jesus did for us by dying on the cross as the propitiation for sin, the sacrifice that bears God's wrath and turns it into favor for us. Because that wrath of God has been satisfied by the blood of Jesus Christ being shed. We're going to participate in the Lord's Supper together. It's for those who have placed their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ as the Savior for their sins, as the sinless Son of God who came from heaven to earth lived on earth as a man, sinless, not succumbing to temptation so that he could be the sacrifice for sin. All the way back in Genesis 3, when sin started there in the garden, we read of blood being shed to cover the sin. Jesus is the one who came His blood was shed to cover our sin so we can be made right with God, that His wrath is satisfied, not because we did something, but because God, through His Son Jesus, through Jesus' obedience to His Father, did something for us, and He came to heal our sinful hearts, making them clean. Jesus died to change our life, not just our eternity. Jesus came to give us an abundant life, life to the full. John John 10.10, he tells us that. But in a twisted way within our propensity for pleasure on this planet, We can so easily misunderstand what that means. And we turn it into that, well, Jesus is going to help me to to have fun, to enjoy all of life, and life is going to be filled with, with happy moments. 
And Jesus is going to give me all the good things that satisfy my senses. That may or may not happen. But I can tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt from reading through Scripture, that does not happen for everybody who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. What does happen is there is a lot of peace in the midst of tragedy. There's a lot of purpose in the midst of confusion when Jesus is allowed to come and heal our hearts, speaking to us about who He is and why He came and why He died on the cross. Jesus died for you and me and desires that you and I would choose Him to allow Him to lead our life, allow Him to direct every step that we take, allow His teaching to become our teaching, realizing His yoke is easy and His burden is light. It's light because Jesus Christ has accomplished everything for us and we don't have to strive in it. This is what we remember as we share the Lord's Supper today. So as you take the bread, this is simply a symbol of the body of Jesus Christ. That body that was born as a babe in a manger that grew up to be a man and then was most brutally whipped and beaten and finally nailed to a cross. We remember that body, that Jesus did that for us. Take together. And then we take the cup, the two elements that Jesus introduced at that last Passover the night before he was betrayed, arrested, and, and crucified. He took the bread and he took the cup. And he said, this is a symbol of my blood being poured out for you. The blood that was needed and necessary to cover sin. This is a symbol of the blood that covers your sin. Do this in remembrance of me. So, Father, we thank you seems very inadequate to say thank you. You gave us physical life. We completely rebelled. And then you gave us your son to be the one to satisfy your wrath so that we might have eternal life. Jesus, you are the only one worthy of our praise. You're the only one worthy of our worship. God, may we be dialed in to what you have done for us by sending your Son, Jesus Christ. And God, may we go 
having been summoned by you as your followers, as your disciples, commissioned to take the message of the gospel to a sick and dying world, fully knowing that you are going to coach us every step of the way. Lord God, you haven't called us to sit and observe and watch. You've, caused, you've called us to be in the game. You've called us to be active participants. May we be found worthy. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.